Welcome to the Anti-Woke Podcast. You know the drill. Let's start off with some so-called jokes. This podcast isn't just black, it's audaciously black. Maybe even anti-disestablishmentarianismly black. That black influencer who makes homophobic rap songs is a real credit to his race. I want a hundred million dollar Manhattan condo, but my trillion dollar foundation can't be used for personal home purchases. Well, maybe my foundation should get into the business of helping disadvantaged sex workers in Manhattan, and they're going to need a pretty nice office. We need a Ukrainian who's killed a lot of Russians to honor at Parliament. Well, we got a guy, boss, but he was a Nazi. That's fine. I falsely accuse people of being Nazis all the time. This podcast supports the wearing of open-toed sandals on Yom Kippur. So go crazy. Now on with the rest of the show. Let's do our weekly crime segment, where we talk about the black crimes the media is talking about and then how they're trying to make it seem like whites are a bunch of criminals. And that's the accurate description of what we do here. It's unseemly, but... Let's put a gloss on top of it. Uh, It's called media analysis, media criticism. That sounds more scholarly. So I use NBC Nightly News, because it's the only one on YouTube, to see what America's being fed. And let's use, I'm going to go with just Wednesday's show, because it was a fun one. So they start every show with some sort of natural disaster. I, I forget what was going on. But anyways, basically towards the front of the show was that black U.S. Army guy who ran into North Korea. He was there for a month or two, and then they let him out. And he had been in Korean jail for assault or something, South Korean jail. And he got out, and then he went anyways, and he ran over. So we're going to keep a count here just for this episode of Race and Crime. I don't think you can count this as a black criminal, you know, one. I don't think we can say black criminal one, but it's debatable. I think, they didn't mention this in NBC Nightly News, but I think the thing about it is, normally if North Korea gets someone, they hold on to them. You know, like, oh, we'll we'll trade you this American for a bunch of money or, you know, North Korean spies or something. But I think this guy, he's schizophrenic or something, and I think they're like, we don't want this schizophrenic black guy anymore. You can have him back. And it's kind of like, don't speak ill of the dead. So it just seems like mainstream media is like, oh, isn't it wonderful that we got an American out? Not, like, why is this guy, you know, assaulting people in Korea and going to Korean jails? And what the hell's wrong with this guy? And I think these segments were like four, that I'm going to talk about was four in a row. There might have been something mixed in there. But that was the first one. And the next one was this female CEO in Baltimore who got murdered. She was 26. Her name was Pava Lapeer. She went to, I think, Johns Hopkins is the fancy university in Baltimore. And she started her own tech company in Baltimore, which, I don't know, you don't hear about that. Apparently, that'll get you murdered. And the murderer was a black guy, and he's on the run, I think. Well, first off, you want to talk about a woman CEO, you know, to lift up all women, believe all women or something. But uh, I guess even if they're dead, it's too late there. You know, that's... That's why we don't have enough women CEOs. They get murdered. America's racist. But the black killer was on the run. And this is something, I don't know how many weeks in a row. We might be six weeks in a row where 
NBC Nightly News is talking about criminals who are still at large. And so a CEO who's a woman, that's weird. A tech CEO in Baltimore, that's weird. They were interviewing like her business partner who helped her start the company. He was black, that's weird. They were talking about her mentor who got her started in the tech industry. He was black, that's weird. I don't have any proof, but it makes me think that this tech company was not the kind of tech company that goes on to make everyone a billionaire. It was probably some sort of woke tech company. I think their name was something like EcoMap. It was Eco something. So, so you know, using AI to fight climate change in inner city American cities. I don't know. Makes me think of these so-called violence interrupters, which is what they want to replace cops with. And then the violence interrupters get murdered. They ain't got no gun. Oh, so the guy was at large, so that's good. And then the police gave a press conference. That seems to be standard now, at least when they're still at large. And then this Baltimore cop is up there. He said something weird. He said, you know, this guy, he's still out there. He goes, he will rape and he will kill. Like record scratch, what? So the 26-year-old CEO that got killed, you know, it's, it's a young white woman. Uh, her name is Pava Lapeer. I don't know what Pava is. Jewish? Something sounds foreign, but anyways, a Google search for Pava Lapeer raped uh, did not come back with whether or not he raped her. But I think he had previously raped and murdered a woman maybe a year ago, and then he was supposed to be in prison for 30 years for some other terrible crime that happened, I don't know, maybe eight years ago, and then they let him out because, you know, it's racist to keep people in prison. I don't know if Baltimore has a George Soros funded DA or not. They probably do. So we're keeping count now. So that's Black Criminals 1. And then the next segment, I was like, are they going to talk about this? Because it seemed like I looked it up on Google News and no one was talking about it. But there was a basically a riot in Philadelphia on Tuesday, maybe. Usually riots happen on the weekend, but they got her done. So there was a cop who killed a Hispanic male, I don't, I don't know, I don't hear nothing about that other that other than there was some sort of like Black Lives Matter protest over that. And then later in that same evening, a whole bunch of, you know, young black people got in their cars, took off their license plates and went and looted, um, I don't know, Lululemon and a bunch of other stores. And they like live streamed it while they did it. So there's lots of video. And elsewhere on YouTube, there's tons of video and it, you know, you can just see that it's a bunch of black people like the, the men, they wear their hoodies and it's harder to see them. But the women are, you know, they're not putting on no crazy getup when they're stealing Lululemon. I guess Lululemon is the yoga pants company. Like they invented it and they sell them for, I don't know what, $80. And that's a good deal somehow. I'm not sure. I think they're like more $50 and they're considered high quality and that is considered worth it, according to the ladies over at Feminine Chaos. Anywho, NBC Nightly News, they just, they clipped it so that it was always someone with maybe a mask and a hoodie on, so you couldn't really see the race of the people doing the looting. I mean, it's not coincidence, it would be very, it's, whatever, it's not something you'd do by accident, it would take quite a bit of effort to obscure the, (laughs) the race of all these looters, but they got it done. And then they rolled that Philly riot. Yeah, and so they're like, oh, this has nothing to do with the Black Lives Matter protest, the peaceful protest that happened before. I don't know. Anyways, maybe it doesn't, but it sounds like the same old horseshit where, hell yeah, it does. 
you know, why did they choose that night to go do it? And I will say, I think the cops arrested 50 people. Like they were, there's video of cops just like grabbing people and throwing them on the ground, which I don't know. They certainly didn't do that during the BLM riots. So times may be changing. And so NBC Nightly News, the host is Lester Holt. He's a black guy. And then there's this Tom Yamas, a Hispanic guy, super handsome guy, um, who, do, who does like segments. I think, I think they're grooming him, not that way, to be the next host because Lester's getting old. But it seems like Tom Yamas is in Oakland for unrelated, well, not related to the Philly riots, just talking about how crime has gone crazy in Oakland and they got riots and looting there, kind of as a, and drugs and whatever. It's kind of a permanent shithole city. And so they rolled in a bunch of footage of basically black people looting various stores and then talking to the black people, Tom Yamas interviewing black people. And so I think even though the Philly stuff, they hid the race, I think the viewer got the idea that this is a black thing. And so I'm going to count that as number two of black crime. Oh, and he was interviewing a bunch of Asian store owners who were going on strike, shutting their stores because they didn't say this, but basically black criminals are coming in, roughing them up and stealing everything that they can grab and they're protesting it. They want the cops to help them out. I think that's too much reading between the lines for your average viewer to put two and two together to get all that, but that that was interesting. In Philly, they also looted an Apple store. I think if you have a laptop, that'll be just as good as any other laptop. I feel like a phone, can they shut that down on you so it's bricked? I don't know. But as they were talking about Philly, and then they're showing a bunch of looters and black looters in Oakland, I was like, what's the white crime? Where's the white crime? This is way too much black crime for them to, I mean, I mean, at this point, they've been talking about, that was a long segment. So, you know, this is like seven minutes of black crime. I'm like, they cannot just let this sit and then, you know, talk about politics and then end of the show. We got to have some white crime. What's the white crime? And there it was. The next segment was something, the serial killer, the white serial killer in New York. It's just like a 30 second clip. But anyways, his court case progresses. They got the DNA results back from the lab or something. And I was like, oh, there's the white crime. So if you watch, you know, any of the nightly news, play that little game now. It's a game I'm going to play. I'll tell you the results. I'm going to try and play it every week. We'll see. I mean, it was that, you know, they'd have a black mass shooter that they used to never, ever talk about. But now they'll talk about him. And then they'll be like, and this is the anniversary of some white mass shooter. So again, it wasn't what no white person committed a crime that day to talk about. But anyways, they talk about something. Here's a black person committed a crime yesterday, and remember this white guy who committed a crime? There, now you, believe, now you know that whites are the actual criminals. So basically that was two black criminal stories, one white criminal, about seven minutes on the black criminals, about 30 seconds on the white. So this is definitely something you wouldn't have seen in 2020, 2021. And then I don't know if you can ca- count this, but they got they, then they had a segment about a cop who was abusing a suspect beating the crap out of him but it was a 15 year old white kid who ding dong ditched i think the cop's house he like ran up kicked the door they had video of that um and then the cop turned off his i don't know i don't know if he ran out the door with his cop uniform on i'm not sure how that went down maybe found him i think found him later that's right and the cop like turned off his body cam 
and then went and threw the kid on the ground and you know punched him in the face a few times i think broke his orbital bone so i'm not going to count that one i mean normally it'd be normally it would be cops are white whites are evil cops are evil but a cop abusing a white kid that's a monkey in the ointment so i mean i don't think the media is going to start giving the correct impression that unarmed more unarmed whites are killed by police each year than unarmed blacks but the level of on-purpose deception from the media is definitely changing. And so I'm this century's Rosa Parks, and let's remember, you know, the media is pushing a racist narrative against whites with this crime stuff. That's why it matters. It doesn't matter if some individual commits a murder and the media reports on it. It's what is the overall impression they are trying to give America. So I'm doing anecdotes, anecdata here. You know, a woke person wouldn't listen to this and be like, oh, I believe you. They'd be like, no, no, whites are still evil. I know it in, I know it in my bones. But I don't have the numbers in front of me. But someone did a analysis of print media. And I think basically it was just when there was a picture of the criminal. So you knew their race by the picture. And then they would look through the article and see if they mentioned the race of the criminal. And at what point in the article did they mention it? And if it was a white criminal, then they did mention the race. If it was a black criminal, criminal, they generally did not. And this is generally speaking. And then the white criminals, while they were mentioning it, they were putting it at the beginning of the article. And with the black criminals, if they bothered to mention it, they were putting that information in the middle or the end of the article. You had to get to all the way to the bottom. Oh, and that's racist. And, you know, like mass shooters. 75 to 80 percent of mass shooters are black and yet i haven't seen a number on this but i bet you it would be something like 80 to 90 percent of the mass shooters mentioned by the media are white so that's just it's a false accusation it's fine if you you know it's okay to say this criminal did this that criminal did that but if you are choosing a criminal to talk about in your media thing because they are white or and then you are suppressing another criminal because they are black and that is racism, you know, being mean to people based on the color of their skin. And then, you know, their answer would be, well, haven't you heard of slavery? Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not being mean to the whites. I'm just being nice to the blacks. Well, it's zero sum. It's racism. Bill Clinton has optionalized his standard greeting. He always says, great to see you. That way, if it's the first time he's ever met you, works great. Or if you're someone he had sex with, but he doesn't remember you at all? Covers that too. Forbes magazine came up with the top 50 influencers. Forbes is like, I think an old school business magazine. And then for non-subscribers, I think they're mostly famous for having the list of the richest people. It used to be Bill Gates for many years would top the list of the Forbes whatever. And I'd be curious to see their richest list after George Floyd. I mean, before George Floyd, it was easy. It was just, it was going to be all white men and you just, you know, whatever. You can rank one white man another uh, above or below another white man. There's no issues. But the top 50 influencer list, it's more diverse, brings up more issues, you know, and it's all post George Floyd. So like number one is Mr. Beast. He's a YouTuber. He's making 84 million a year. And he might be the only guy on the whole list that I watch. And he does videos where he'll blow up a Ferrari or something with dynamite. 
You know, I think Lamborghinis are cheaper or something because I keep seeing people destroy Lamborghinis, not really Ferraris. Like Mr. Beast put a Lamborghini through a giant car shredder the other day. Um, Whistling Diesel is, is probably the biggest car guy on YouTube. And he created a giant slingshot for shooting cars. Like, you know, he would be in the car, he would back up real fast into the slingshot until it was taut, and then he'd have it launch him into a fast, you know, quarter mile. And I think the Lamborghini is made out of fiberglass, so, you know, you run it into a giant slingshot thingabobber, it just crushes the back end. But I say that because sometimes they'll have Ferraris in the videos too, and then they don't destroy the Ferraris. I believe Ferrari is the original supercar company from Italy, and then Mr. Lamborghini was like the star car designer at Ferrari. I think like all the classic, super awesome, original Ferraris were designed by him. And then he left and created his own Lamborghini company. And in the 80s, Lamborghinis were the best. That was when I was a kid. That was what you'd have on a poster on your wall. Anyway, so Mr. Beast was the number one influencer. And then, so Logan Paul and Jake Paul... And then other people I never heard of, they were all in the top five. Um, and they were making like $35 million a year. And I was talking about Logan Paul and Jake Paul the other week. And like one of them is, I think both of them do boxing. Or one of them's an incredible boxer now. He does this influencer boxing. And then his girlfriend is famous for having sex with tons of famous people. And anyways, I was talking about that. Whichever one I said it was, it was the other one. I don't know if they're twins or brothers, the other brother. From another mother? No, same mother. But so I just know about them because of celebrity gossip stuff on the internet. But anyways, number two on the list is KSI. And the only thing I know about him is that he was he's a black, black guy, influencer, maybe UK. And he was in one of the boxing matches with, with one of the, whichever was the more famous Paul brother. But what was interesting is he made $25 million a year. So anyways, it went... 84 million, 25 million, and then 35 million, 35 million, 35 million. And I think at the beginning of the article, Forbes said that, you know, money is not the only way to capture the influence or the greatness or the whatever of a influencer. So, you know, this is not purely by money. And then, I mean, what they didn't say was, we don't like the way, you know, non-whites are turning out on this list. So we're gonna go by money except for the non-whites. And they're like, wouldn't it be cool if the influencer making the second most amount of money in the whole world was black? They're like, yeah, that would be cool. They're like, well, that's not happening. They're like, eh, make them number two anyway. And I think KSI, I think a lot of these guys are video game players that branched out beyond that. But he's like a rapper as well as a boxer. And I think they said he does racist and homophobic rap songs. I mean, I doubt that's racist against whites, so I don't, I don't know what kind of racism he's about. I mean, it's not racist to be racist against whites, so it ain't that. He's black, and just, you know, no one's racist against blacks, so he ain't that. So maybe he's racist against brown people or something. But anyways, he's homophobic. That we can understand. That's relatively clear-cut. I don't think he's a gay guy. And so basically, Forbes has this list, and it just made me think, it's, it's kind of like they're like, you know, we need to treat black people like children. We need to we need to mess around with the list and not put people in their correct spots because we want to treat black people like children. It's like, you know, little Sally, she's four years old and she 
comes up with their little crayon drawing and shows it to you and you're like, oh, Sally, that's great. What a great drawing. Uh, what is that again? She's like, oh, it's a unicorn. Wow, that is a great unicorn. I knew it all along. What a wonderful drawing of a unicorn. So I could just, you know, kind of hear the parent going, oh, what a great influencer you have there, black people. What a wonderful influencer. Uh, what do they do again? Oh, they, oh, he makes homophobic rap songs. Well, what a great homophobic rap song making influencer you have there, black people. So anyways, KSI, he would have been somewhere in the 5 to 15 range, but they made him number two because of the penumbra and emanations. I should look up where that came from, but that's a saying. It's something about like the Supreme Court. When the Supreme Court doesn't rule the obvious way that the Constitution tells them to rule, they go, well, it's because of the penumbra and emanations. But so I looked at the rest of the 50 people, never heard of any of them. Basically, I was just looking at race and gender and age, demographics. I don't think there was a Hispanic on there. I don't know. Some of the some of the women were hot, maybe had a little something-something in them. A little coffee in the cream. Let's see, that doesn't work. A little maple syrup in the oat milk? I don't know. Do you have any? Would you like some? I like to just say the punchlines of a joke. Wrecked them? Damn near killed them! Chris Farley says that in a movie, which that is the punchline to a joke, where rectum means multiple things. Anyways, they don't give you any of the joke. It's just him hanging out with a bunch of black guys smoking weed. And he goes, rectum, damn near killed him. And him and all the black guys cannot stop laughing. But anyways, the top 50 influencers, it's, it was pretty much about half, you know, young white men who I think are good at, you know, video games, podcasting, YouTube. And then the other half is just absolutely smoking hot, the hottest of the hot. Um, young white women who I think probably all come from Instagram. I mean, some of them are TikTok too. But I think they just, you know, they take pictures and videos of themselves looking attractive, living a good life, and then they sell products that supposedly are going to make ugly girls at home who watch TikTok beautiful like them, to put it bluntly. So there's a few black guys on the list. Like I say, no Hispanics or the no, no obvious ones. There's a few Asian or maybe, I don't know, one of the top 10 was like a, what's his name, Markiplier. Looks like he might be half Japanese, half white. I've heard his name. I don't know anything beyond that. All right, but here's the punchline. So you go down the whole list and you get to number 49 and it's a black woman and you get to number 50 and it's Dylan Mulvaney, that trans guy who started the whole Bud Light boycott. So I think they made their list of 50 influencers based on money. They looked at their list and they were like, there's no black women on here and there's no trans people on there. And they're like, well, just take off number 49 and 50 and replace them with a black woman and a trans person. And I think maybe the last 10 or 20 influencers, they're all listed as making a million dollars. So... You know, if you make anywhere from $501,000 to $1,499,000, I guess they can round that off to $1 million. And then if anyone was going to risk being called racist and say, why did you put this person there? They'd be like, oh, we're just rounding off to a million. Just thinking a bit more about Forbes saying that KSI makes ra racist rap songs. Like if it was racist against whites, Forbes would be like, uh, we don't talk about that. We're not going to talk about anything about that.
Or if we are going to have to talk about something, you know, let me tell you about the history of slavery. You know, sit down, get ready for a long discussion of slavery. And no, no, not the Barbary pirates, not the white slaves in the Mediterranean. No, not the Native Americans who owned slaves. No, not how the first slave owner in America was black. God damn it, you know what kind of slavery I'm talking about. I looked up the penumbra and emanations quote. It's something that the Supreme Court came up with to do civil rights, even though it wasn't really written in the Constitution. In the Griswold case, Justice William Douglas explained that, quote, specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights have penumbras formed by emanations from those guarantees that help give them life and substance. Here's a headline from Bloomberg the other day. So, after George Floyd, quote, Corporate America promised to hire a lot more people of color. It actually did. The year after Black Lives Matter protests, the S&P 100 added more than 300,000 jobs. 94% went to people of color. End quote. And I, I'm not sure the timeline on that. It definitely doesn't include 2023. It might, may or may not have 2022 in there. And also, I don't believe it. I don't know. I mean, I know that white men are being discriminated against like crazy in corporate America, but that sounds extreme. Because I know, I'm pretty sure they'll give a white woman a job, you know, on the board or whatever, CEO, CTO, COO. They need women in there. So, you know, maybe it's 94% went to not white men. If that was the answer, I'd believe it. Well, maybe. Anyways, it's a pretty crazy number. Basically, for a year or two, they stopped hiring, it says, they stopped hiring whites, basically, period, in corporate America for after George Floyd. And we'll see. I mean, that's against the 1964 Civil Rights Act law. Um, Supreme Court is probably going to make that stuff illegal. Uh, I mean, you know, it's a little hard to go back in time and be like, I would have had a great job and been and making a ton of money, but you didn't give it to me. Uh, it's going to be very hard to prove that kind of thing. What we need to know, and I'm sure it's the same, is, you know, 94% of promotions in the S&P 100 uh, went to non-whites. That's the kind of stuff you can sue over. And Bill Maher was talking about that, and he went and saw the Barbie movie, and in that movie, Barbie is fighting the patriarchy, which is represented by the board of directors of Mattel, and it's 12 men. So Bill Maher went and looked up the real board of directors of Mattel. It's half women. And 45% of people appointed to a board of directors in the last year available, 2021, were women. So 45% women. You know some of the men were not white, so less than half white men. Is it 94%? I don't know. The Canadian Parliament had Zelensky from Ukraine do a speech. And while he was there, they honored another guy who lives in Canada now. He's like in his 90s. He fought in World War One or Two, um, killed a bunch of Russians, got a big old standing ovation. Turns out he was a Nazi, so that's fun. I can see them as they're trying to find, you know, some Canadian person to honor alongside Zelensky. They're like, "Well, we got this one guy. He killed a lot of Russians in World War Two. Oh, sweet. So he was he was in the U.S. military." Well, no, no, the U.S. and Russia were on the same side back then. Oh, was he, was he in the Japanese army and he was killing Russians? Was he a Japanese guy? Well, no, he was, he's not Japanese. 
well, whatever, whoever he fought for, I'm sure it's fine. But the All In podcast is talking about it. And then David Sachs, who's against the Ukraine war, does a phenomenal breakdown of America's involvement leading up to this war with Russia. America's war with Russia, using Ukraine as a proxy. So I'm going to play about a five-minute clip of him breaking it all down. But reminder, he's going to mention um, Victoria Newland, And so she was the Undersecretary of State who basically was in charge of overthrowing the everyone in the world agrees legitimately democratically elected government in Ukraine in 2014 on behalf of America. It's kind of funny. It's like, what the hell kind of job is Undersecretary of State? Anyways, apparently it's a pretty important job. I think the Secretary of State is overseeing, you know, America's in attempts to overthrow probably 20 different governments around the world, you know, at any one time. And then if you got a live one, he doesn't have time for that, so you put an undersecretary of state on it. So, you know, in America, we don't even know the undersecretary of state's names. I think there's more than one. That's a good question. But they can be put in charge of destroying entire countries, you know, countries in Europe with 40 million inhabitants. Here's the clip. Way in which I think this wasn't an accident, Jason, is that if you look at U.S. policy towards Ukraine, we have made common cause with a number of these far-right ultranationalist groups, frankly, neo-Nazi groups. And this occurred before the the current war. So it's not just a marriage of convenience. First of all, if you go back to World War II, the, the father of Ukrainian nationalism is a guy named Stepan Bandera. And today in Ukraine, he is seen as some sort of hero. And there are streets named after him. And there are streets named after some of his co-conspirators who collaborated with Nazis. If you fast forward to the more recent past, to 2014, when we had this uh, Maidan coup in Kiev that was backed by Victoria Newland, one of the key figures in that coup was a, a guy named Ola Tanibok, who is the founder of the Svoboda Party, which is the Social Nationalist Party, which if you know what Nazi stands for, it's National Socialist. They basically just flipped the name. And the original logo of the Svoboda Party was the Wolf's Angel, which was a Nazi insignia. This was a far-right party infused with the racial ideology of Stepan Bandera, who was, again, a a Nazi. And they brought this guy in and and his party as the muscle in this coup. If you look at the Victoria Newland phone call, the infamous phone call where she is picking the new Ukrainian government, the the Yatsazar guy phone call, she says that Klitsch, meaning Klitschko, and and, uh, Tanibok need to remain on the outside, but Yats needs to be talking to Tanibok four times a week, okay? He was part of the chess pieces that they were moving around. After the coup, a civil war breaks out in the Donbass because the ethnic Russians there are opposed to this new government and the fact that Yanukovych, who they voted for, was deposed in an insurrection. What happens then is a war breaks out where far-right paramilitary organizations like Right Sector and like the infamous Azov Battalion start killing these ethnic Russian separatists. And a full-blown civil war breaks out, thousands of people get killed. Does the Kiev government suppress these neo-Nazi groups? No, they bring them under the formal command structure of the Ukrainian military. Azov Battalion becomes a division of the Ukrainian military. It's shocking. 
And this goes on from 2014 through so you're 2021. The Ukraine army, just to be clear here, has Nazis in it, Nazi supporters. There's no question about that. And there are many people who were concerned about this in the 2015 to 2020 timeframe. There were many articles written about it. The nation had an article about it. There were efforts in Congress at various points to try and ensure that the aid that we were giving to the Ukrainian government did not go so to let's get the Italian. So, so let's get so Jewish. it is said. So it yeah. is said. Okay. I think the important and 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 uh, obviously that Zelensky is a Nazi or a Nazi sympathizer. No, no, I don't, I don't think he's a Nazi. And to be clear, I don't think most Ukrainians are Nazis, and I don't even think that most Ukrainian nationalists are Nazis. What I'm saying is that there is a Nazi element in Ukraine that, that percent? people have whitewashed over. Well, here's the thing about it. I don't think it's a huge percentage, but I think they have outsized influence due to their willingness to use violence, due, due to their extremism, yeah. and their willingness to use violence. Do you think violence. it's any different and, than the Nazi percentage in, say, what, whatever you want to say, white supremacists in the United States or in Germany or anywhere else? I do, and I think it's different in the sense that in the United States, for sure, we have neo-Nazi groups. They're not brought into the military. We don't have streets named after their patriarchs. Furthermore, we don't have members of our military with Nazi insignia on them. There was a New York Times article just a few months ago talking about the fact that, embarrassingly, a lot of these Ukrainian soldiers are being photographed with Nazi insignia on their uniforms. Now, the New York Times was framing this as a problem because it was a propaganda coup for Putin. And yeah. presumably it's it was. But I, think it's a problem. Yeah. but I think it's a problem because it's a problem not because of just the PR optics of it. And, you know, at various points, I think this is in the New York Times article as well, Western media has had to airbrush these photos to hide this fact. Now, uh, Oh, the, the New York Times has airbrushed photos of Nazi I don't think New York Times has, but oh. I, I don't think New York Times has, but I think they talk about this ah. thorny problem of not wanting to show these photos. With respect to the, the Zelensky being Jewish, so what I'd say about that is that Zelensky only came on the scene quite recently. He got elected in 2019. And again, I don't think the majority of people in Ukraine are Nazis. Okay, so I'm not saying that. But just because Zelensky came on the scene in 2019 and was elected president doesn't mean there's a long, and I would say disturbing history and association between Ukrainian ultranationalism and neo-Nazi groups. And I think that part of the, the woke thing and part of this Orwellian desire where control of the present gives you the ability to rewrite the past is that there's been a deliberate effort to cover up this problem and to pretend it doesn't exist, to, to turn a blind eye to it. Well, my point is that U.S. policy has been to do this. In other words, the U.S. You say our government, yeah. Okay. The U.S. State Department and presumably CIA made common cause with these far-right groups because we thought it was beneficial to be aligned with them. And so we did it in the Maidan coup in 2014. From 2015 to 2021, we could have gone along with efforts under the Minsk Accords to resolve this conflict in the Donbass peacefully, but we never did that. We never gave it any support. David Sachs has a theory about Sam Altman becoming the world's first trillionaire. So Sam Altman is the CEO of OpenAI, you know, ChatGBT, and he likes to go around saying that he doesn't own any shares in it, the company. And so OpenAI, you can see from the name, it's kind of special. It was started by Elon Musk and a bunch of other Silicon Valley bigwigs, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And it was a nonprofit. It was going to be a charity to bring AI to the world. And Elon Money, 
Elon Musk gave his money, I think, back to the company and is, he's no longer involved with it from a long time ago. But so OpenAI, it's kind of a charity, but also they need money like a business. So they've been doing, what's it called, investment rounds and stock options to their employees and just all that stuff. But they say, you know, we're a charity, so this is different. Or, you know, we're kind of a charity. So, like, you know, say you buy a million dollars worth of OpenAI stock. Well, they say, okay, you can have that stock, but we're not going to let you make more than 10 times what you put in. You know, that way you're not a normal investor. You're like a charity. You know, it's like you're giving money to charity. Anyways, so you put in a million dollars, and if the, and if the OpenAI becomes an expensive company, then you get 10 million back. And basically you have to sell your shares back. As soon as it hits a certain valuation, you have to give your shares back to OpenAI and they give you $10 million. And so here's the conspiracy theory. If OpenAI becomes worth a trillion dollars, then basically everyone who ever bought stock is gonna be cashed out. They're gonna have to turn their stock in and get their money for it. I mean, they'll make a lot of money. I think, I think one of the rounds you get 100 times what you put in. But you can't just be along for the ride the whole way, you know, it's a trillion, it's 10 trillion, you can't be a part of that. So the question is, who does own the stock? When everyone else who invested has to turn their stock back in, who owns it? Well, Sam Altman has a charity or a foundation or whatever, probably a 501c3, I forget which one it would be. And anyways, it looks like that's what would own OpenAI and it might own 100% of it. Like, you know, like Elon Musk, he owns part of Tesla, but they had to keep selling parts of Tesla away. And basically the same for, you know, every billionaire you know, they probably don't own more than five or 10% of the giant company that they started, which still makes them worth $100 billion. And so the possible genius of all this, well, first off, getting to own the entire company <laughs> because everyone else was treated like they invested in a charity is genius. But second off, it's a charity foundation. You don't have to pay taxes. If they ever implement a wealth tax, they're not gonna be coming for your money. You're like, I don't have any money. I'm homeless. And then you can't use the foundation's money to do whatever you want. You can't buy yourself a house. You know, what can't you do is buy yourself a house or a car. But I think Sam Altman, was, he was rich before he even got on at OpenAI. And being the head of a, being the sole owner <laughs> and total control of a, trillion dollar company i mean i'm sure you can use that power to go do something else to make yourself money and anyways and then the trillion dollars that you have you can do anything you want except for buy a house or a car like you know do you want to fly around in the world's largest private jet 24 7 oh uh, you know it's a, it's a business it's a charity business expense no problem it's way better to have a jet than to own a mansion and yachts are only for russian oligarchs who need to launder their money and I think there's been a couple examples of people doing this kind of stuff, not doing it at the front end. That's genius. But um, I believe Patagonia, the kind of, I don't know, mountain climbing, sports, activewear company, clothing store company, it was like family owned. And I think, or maybe one guy, and he, he turned all his stock over to a foundation. And this is where it's like, you know, the 501c3 versus the 501... I don't know, D3, E3, there's, there's another one. Anyways, one of them allows you to give um, political donations and one of them doesn't. 
Anyways, so one of them, you can be a charity and give political donations. And I think what the Patagonia guy is into is he's into having Trump derangement syndrome and giving money to Democrats, and he's also into not paying any taxes. And so that's what his, the Patagonia Foundation does for him. And then, you know, when, when we start having trillionaires, you know, maybe people, you know, people are going to be pitchforks in the streets. We've got to take away the money from the trillionaires. It'd be pretty nice to be like, oh, I'm not a trillionaire. You know, I just, I just do charity. I'm not a trillionaire at all. You know, go take money from the plumber who's making 120 grand. Leave me alone. I'm just a charity case. Here's a little wokeness in sports. So Deion Sanders is a super famous American football player, and now he's a coach. And the hype around him being a coach at University of Colorado is enormous. Uh, it's kind of because he was always super famous. I think, you know, the media's playing it up because he's a black coach. He's kind of like the, like the great white hope, but he's the black hope. Because black people are the best at playing football, but so far they don't seem great at being coaches. Or maybe it's just racism. But the University of Oregon is my team, and they just absolutely crushed Deion Sanders' University of Colorado team the other day. Wah, wah. And they put TV cameras in the Oregon locker room, and the coach is firing up his team before the game, and he's like, they're fighting for clicks. We're fighting for wins. And I think Dion he rubs the other coaches the wrong way by being super-duper famous and whatnot. And he, he talks weird, like, you know, in an after-game um, interview, he'll be like, yeah, they wanted to beat me. Like, you're supposed to say, oh, it's a team game and everyone played their hardest and whatever horseshit you're supposed to say. But he's like, me, they want to beat me. He's like, oh, and there's a, you know, there's a team too, but basically it's all about me. But CNN did an article about his audacious blackness, so I'm just going to read you some of that. It's kind of funny. After his team's first victory earlier this month, University of Colorado football coach Deion Sanders said something remarkable. He talked bluntly about racism and football in a way that few black coaches at an elite level are willing to do. Quote, We're doing things that have never been done, and that makes people uncomfortable, Sanders said. When you see a confident black man sitting up here talking his talk, walking his walk, coaching 75% African Americans in the locker room, that's kind of threatening. Oh, they don't like that. End quote. We know what Sanders' critics say. He's got a big mouth. He plays the race card when he should just coach football. His, quote, hype train is about to derail, end quote. But as at least one columnist has noted, Sanders also embodies the, quote, audacious blackness, end quote, that so many African Americans hunger for right now. Black America's embrace of Sanders and his team is now well documented. One black commentator has compared him to Muhammad Ali. Numerous black celebrities from rappers Master P and Lil Wayne to L.A. Clippers forward Kawhi Leonard and actor Dwayne The Rock Johnson have made appearances at his games. Sanders has even joked someone told him that by the time Colorado plays USC next week, the stadium in Boulder is, quote, going to look like the BET Awards. A little science for you. They finally figured out where eels come from. So eels are a type of fish. They're long and skinny. I guess it's kind of ha like how sharks are fish, but they have cartilage instead of bones. Anyways, there's a lot of weird stuff that's still a fish. And I think it depends on what part of the planet you live on, whether or not you eat eels in 
the U.S. or certainly in Oregon, we don't eat eels here. The only time I ever see eels as a possible thing to eat is at a sushi restaurant. And so they figured out where eels come from like maybe six months to a year ago. And it would be like, well, you know, people were not aware that they didn't know where they came from. But it's interesting to me because a while back, Business Insider has a YouTube channel and they will show you all sorts of interesting stuff around the world. And I watched a video where baby eels in Japan go for like $12,000 a kilogram. What, like five grand a pound. And Japan has a real interesting infrastructure, you know, like family eel farms passed down through generations. And, and it's, real, it's real delicate. Well, you know, it's $5,000 a pound for the babies. So you don't let a bunch of Yahoo cowboys do the farming. It's too much money involved. And the reason why they're so expensive is because you can't, you can't breed them in captivity because no one knew where they came from. So hopefully that was enough to make you curious about where they came from, because now I'm going to tell you. So eels are weird. They go through like five stages where each stage looks like a different animal. And I think a lot of times people didn't know that this was a baby eel or, you know, this is, this is the middle-aged eel or whatever. They're just like, oh, that's a whole nother fish. And I think they start off as maybe a larva. I forget what they were calling them. It's almost like a little worm or something. I think it's larvae. It's making me question myself now, so, you know, take it all with a grain of salt. But I think they're like a larva, and then they look like a leaf made out of glass. And then they turn into little eels, which are called glass eels because they're transparent. And then they turn into, I think, what's called the yellow eel because they're yellow. And then they turn into the full-size eel, which is, I don't know, like dark mud-colored. And I guess the Greeks and the Romans and probably lots of people who didn't have writing. But anyways, the people who did have writing back in the day, they used to eat eels. And they wondered at them because they're like, these eels don't have any reproductive organs. And basically, as far as we knew, we're like, you know, even modern science, you cut them open, they didn't have any reproductive organs. But to cut to the chase, there's a deep part of the Atlantic Ocean... It's actually kind of off the east coast of America, like a big, you know, it's a chunk of the ocean that's as big as, I don't know, North America itself. And so the eels, they start out as babies on the seafloor there where it's super deep and you can't go look at them. And then they swim over to like Europe. They live most of their life. And then when they're full size, they move back to the Atlantic Ocean off the North, North America. And when they're doing that, they stop eating and they digest themselves from the inside and they use that energy to grow sex organs. And then they spawn on the bottom of the ocean off of North America and they die. And I think we've been putting radio collars on them for a while, but they're just, oh, that's right. It takes them 18 months to go from Europe over to off, off of North America. And so it's just like the radio collars don't last that long. Plus these eels are on the, you know, they're a mile down on the bottom of the ocean floor and it just it just made it difficult before you'd ever see the radio collar ah it started here ended up there and i don't think just because we figured that out now we can grow baby eels ourselves i mean whoever figures that out they can sell them for five thousand dollars a pound but we haven't done it yet all right folks you heard it here first emergent conspiracy and so emergence is a thing in science where something complex comes from a bunch of 
simpler parts. Like think of videos of schools of fish that kind of look like they're one thing, even though each little fish isn't, you know, thinking in complex thoughts about how to get a whole school together. Each, fi each little fish just does its part, and then you get this, you know, cool thing. You've probably seen it, like, well, a shark will try and go through, go and bite a bunch of fish in a school of fish, and the school of fish will just create a hole in itself that the shark goes through and misses them all. And there's lots of examples. I think the most famous one is consciousness. It's a theory for consciousness is that, you know, each individual brain cell is obviously not conscious, but you put them all together, you get this emergent phenomenon, phenomenon of consciousness. And so what we have going on in America and politics today is a emergent conspiracy. Each individual part, you know, it's not the old kind of conspiracy where some people in a dark room get together and whatever, plan it all out. It's a bunch of individual people making decisions and the end result is the exact same as if a few people in a dark room had said, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna bring down Trump or whatever. I mean, Trump is the, Trump is basically what it is. You know, he's an, people think he's an existential threat. You know, so each, each person in the media, each person in the government, each person working at Google, big tech, they're each a fish. And then you get the exact same result of a conspiracy, which is the school of fish. And it's all to try and stop Trump from getting elected last time and this time coming up. So you get this complex behavior to suppress information about Hunter Biden's laptop, even though people are not, you know, they're not all on the same page. There's no email address that sends it out to, you know, the probably a million people or something who are doing it. It's just an emergent phenomenon. And uh, so basically there is a conspiracy. It's, just, it's not the old kind, it's this new kind, emergent conspiracy. I went on Google, I looked that up to see if anyone else had said those words, put those two words together very much, because I think no one's going to get it from listening to my podcast, but people are going to probably start talking about the fact that we have an emergent conspiracy. And anyways, I'm going to put it into the title of this podcast, if I remember, and then there'll be a timestamp on there showing when this podcast came out, and then... I think, I think, I, I hope no one's done it all, no one else has done it yet, and then I'll be the first one. I'm gonna be famous, I'm gonna be rich, attractive women are all gonna want me. Coleman Hughes, one of my favorite podcasters, he did a TED Talk, I think in April, and then, you know, now, September, we find out that they were suppressing his TED Talk. He's a black man, his talk was about how colorblindness is good, everyone should be treated I guess equally, regardless of their race. I guess you shouldn't treat people differently based on their race. And he's saying interpersonally and public policy-wise. And Ted, I think it was originally a bunch of symposium talks um, around technology, maybe starting in 15 years ago. And it was like, technology is great. AI is going to be awesome. Fusion is going to solve, you know, the climate crisis. And then Donald Trump got elected and, you know, everyone, you know, I think it's in Silicon Valley or California, everyone got woke. All the talks became technology is evil. It's going to destroy us all. All the world's, all the society's problems are coming from the, the right. Anyways, they got woke and, you know, they brought in a bunch of woke people. Uh, I think probably diversity. They needed more diversity, I think, on the, this part I'm speculating on. They needed more diversity amongst the TED staff. 
and they got that. And then someone, probably a white man, thought it was a good idea to have Coleman Hughes talk about colorblindness. And then that freaked out a bunch of the staff. I think the black staff, the woke staff, not just blacks. Well, so this, I'm talking about this because Coleman is on the All In podcast. And it sounds like one of the guys, he's unaware. He's like, oh, was it the, you know, were the, the black employees were complaining about it? And Coleman's like, well... Some of them were black. I don't, I don't know exactly who was complaining about it, but I, don't, I have no reason to believe that they were all black necessarily. But that's a common misconception. I bet that at least one of my listeners has that misconception, even though I mention it a lot. But anyways, woke people, people who are racist against whites, etc. That is not black people. Maybe disproportionately, but it's, it's white people. You know, maybe a black woman complained to the higher-up people at TED, but the people who did it all are in charge of it all. It's white guys being racist against whites. Anyways, the TED Talks, they normally get a half million to a million views. Somehow Coleman's got, I don't know, 80,000 views. I don't know, shadow banning of some sort on a TED website. No clue. And you get up in front of a crowd, you do the talk, they record it, it's a video, But then, you know, they don't necessarily release it, I guess, you know, they don't live stream it or something. So people were complaining, woke people were complaining. And I guess what they said was, you know what, you should do a, whatever, a debate with a guy who thinks that colorblindness is not the answer. People should be treated differently based on their race. And we'll put that right after your talk. It'll be your talk followed by a debate about how your talk is racist, basically. You defending your, you Coleman, you need to defend your talk. We'll, we'll put your talk up, and then we'll have you defend your talk against someone calling you racist. And Coleman refused that, and they're like, okay, how about this? We want, you to, we want you to sit there and have someone call you racist. We'll have that as a separate talk. How does that sound? You know, we won't put it right after yours. He's like, okay, fine. Well, that was all agreed to. That all happened. They put up the second talk afterwards. And then only later on did they find out that somehow it was being shadow banned. But all of that was to get to the point that I wanted to make, which I've made before. But basically, Donald Trump got elected. And then, you know, all the people in the media, academia, all the powerful people got the idea, wrong idea in my opinion, that it is the moral, the moral thing to do is to have your heart full of hatred against people on the right. Like normally, it's not good to be bigoted and racist and sexist but you know we have this wokeness thing and actually it's moral the moral thing the only moral thing to do is to be a racist sexist bigot against the people on the right they're so evil it justifies your hatred your hatred is a good thing the more you hate people the more you want to destroy their lives the more you know you want people to lose their jobs Wow, what a great, wonderful, good person you are because you want to totally destroy someone else's life. You want to throw people into prison for years? You're even better. I mean, you're a saint. Anyways, so TED Talks. I think they're, they're also released on NPR as whatever, an NPR show. Anyways, TED got woke. Got me a little riled up. Figured I'd say that. Basically, it's in-group, out-group, tribalism, partisanship. Call it what you want. But it seems like the human brain, it really likes to hate people. But it doesn't like to hate people just the normal way. It likes to hate people and then think that it's good. You know, your brain, the thing that is, you know, mushing around in your skull, it wants to have hatred for groups of people 
and think that it's being good and moral when it does it. And apparently, you know, over the thousands and millions of years, there have been people that, you know, they wanted to be your ancestors, they wanted to pass on their DNA, have sex, have kids, create countries and empires and pass on their DNA. And some of them were like, I hate those people over there and I'm evil. I know I'm being evil and I hate them. Anyways, that person did not pass on their DNA. So we're not like them. And then there was someone else who's like, you know, those people over there, I don't hate them. You know, they, you know, they have to put on their boots one boot at a time, just like we do. You know, they got their troubles. We got our troubles. It's understandable. I don't hate them. They don't deserve to be hated just because they're different. And apparently that person didn't get laid or pass on their DNA. Their kids were killed or they didn't get laid. They did not pass on their DNA either. So we're not like that. And then there was another kind of person who's like, those people who are not like us, they're evil and we're good. We're good. And the more you kill those people over there, the more good we are. And you know, maybe they were a farmer and the farmer next door said, I like the cut of your jib. You can marry my daughter. And apparently that's the kind of human that everyone on the planet today is descended from. So I'm getting close to finishing the shower remodel I've been working on. And I've basically been the general contractor and also doing labor. And then I hired my buddy. I've been paying him 25 an hour under the table. And it looks like I needed about 50 hours worth of help. So 12.50 for him. I got the shower insert off of Facebook Marketplace for 100 bucks. And then I think it's about 450 for other materials. It's about two grand total. I think if I just would have hired someone, probably looking at five grand, maybe 10. And mine was not a normal remodel. I had a clawfoot tub that had, it was in a corner and it had windows on two sides of it. So basically both of those walls had to be completely opened up and redone exterior and interior, which allowed me to bring in the one piece insert. You know, if you're, if you're thinking about getting a new shower, it comes in four pieces, what, bottom, two sides, and back, so you can bring it in through your door. And if you don't have windows, you just set it against the wall. Don't even cut the sheetrock. Actually, no, you got to cut the sheetrock. Basically, if you can do sheetrock, you can do everything, then you just need a plumber to hook it up. But I bring this up because I learned a new phrase. It's one word long, and it's heard. So me playing the contractor and him playing the laborer, that's not our usual relationship. I don't, you know, you don't normally get to order your buddies around. And especially like, you know, uh, crawl under the house and go do this thing that you're not going to enjoy. And then double especially, oh, I'm not a real contractor or a plumber. That thing that I told you to, you know, that thing where I made you crawl under the house and do something you didn't enjoy and it took a long time and it really sucked. Well, that was all wrong. So now you got to go in, take all that crap out, and go do it again a new way. And so as I was telling him to do each of these various things, um, he was replying to me, heard. And at first I thought he was saying word. Like, you know, I don't know if you, if you listen to rap songs in the 80s and grew up like me. In the 90s, we used to say word. It means like, yes, and I agree, but it's, you know, kind of black slang. Like, man, those hamburgers were the bomb word. I had a buddy who would always say, word, Quita. I'm not sure where he got that. It just meant yes. All right, so get ready for some cussing. But anyway, so, but my buddy was saying heard, like I heard you. And he, and I was like, well, you know, I thought you were saying word. He's like, he used to be a line cook or something at a fancy restaurant, you know, where there's like a, you know, yes, chef, no chef. 
And so apparently when a chef goes around and gives you an order, you just say heard. I heard you and I, you know, and I will do it. And basically it's a high stress situation in those um, kitchens sometimes. And it's all time sensitive. So basically they needed a word for like, you know, oh, hey, you know, go cook a steak. And you can say, I would love to go cook a steak. I'll do it right now. But you say heard. But sometimes the chef tells you to do something you don't want to do or something that's impossible. You know, put 12 steaks in the oven that only holds eight because the, you know, the lunch crush is happening. And so sometimes the chef tells you to do something and what you want to say back to them is, fuck you, fuck your instructions, take them and shove them up your fucking ass. But obviously you can't say that, so heard also means that. Yom Kippur was the other day. What's that? I don't know. It's some Jewish holiday. I guess you only drink water or something. It came around the same time as the Hollywood writer's strike was ending. And someone said, you know, there's no point in going to work on this day. That's Yom Kippur. Like, you know, even if you're not Jewish, you'll just go to the office and there'll be no one else there. I believe that was a Hollywood reporter who's Jewish who said that. But a podcast I listen to is called Israel Daily News. And the host of that is Shanna Fold, who is a very attractive young Jewish woman. It's not why I listen, but that is, I don't know, that's nice. But she's talking about Yom Kippur, and she's like, well, normally I just tell you what is going, you know, what the news in Israel is. But today, I was part of the news. And so I've said before, you got, you know, in Israel, you got the Ashkenazi Jews. That's the white Jews, the kinds we have in America. Then you got the Mizrahi Jews. That's the brown Jews, which we don't have. But anyways, they're more... Middle Eastern and South European. And the white ones are kind of atheist and the brown ones are religious and they don't get along or they don't agree politically. It's like the partisanship in America. But apparently the white Jews, the Ashkenazi are split. I mean, I'm sure the Mizrahi are split too. You know, no one, no one is a monolith. But it sounds like the white Jews who have lived in Israel for a while, they're left wing, they're atheist and they don't like religious Jews. And the kind of white Jews that are religious are ones who moved to Israel more recently. Maybe. That's just the hint I'm getting. And we're not talking Orthodox with a funny hat or clothing and little curly Q hair. But so anyway, so Shanna, she, I think she's from New York. I mean, she's been in Israel for years, but so Shanna with two N's, she's, she's very sensitive about that. Her and her mosque or um, church, I can't think of the word. Well, actually, it sounds like maybe they don't have a building, whatever it's called. I don't know. They like to do their prayer prayer outdoors. Anyway, so they got together to do their prayer in a park or something in Tel Aviv, the biggest city in Israel. And so they're religious enough to pray, but she wears open-toed sandals, so she's not hardcore religious. Some protester, we'll hear about them, uh, tells her. But they recently passed a law, I guess they passed a law on Yom Kippur. She was complaining about doing it that day when you're only drinking water and you don't have time to read the news. But the Supreme Court, which is the liberal bastion of Israel, they passed a law saying you can't have male-female segregated prayer. Normally they have some kind of barrier, but they didn't have that. They didn't know the law had changed, but they didn't have a barrier, but they had some Israeli flags going down the middle. And then kind of like the... You know, the Black Lives Matter movement, no black people involved. Anyways, the protesters came down there to, whatever, say they don't like religious groups that, they don't like religious groups, period, 
And then they especially don't like ones that segregate by sex. And I think they just had the flags and they had men and women on both sides. But it was, it was mostly men and mostly women on each side. So they were trying to do their prayer and then these protesters got up in their face and they were falling around and yelling at them and surrounding certain ones. And I think, you know, men, men getting up in the faces of girls because that's fun, I guess, and yelling, you know, how would it, would it be fun to put your face right in front of a little girl's face and just yell at her? I mean, it's kind of evil, but I guess it wouldn't be boring. You could look at, you know, you could see the fear in their eyes. So Shanna's a little firecracker. She's going around scolding the protesters, and they don't give a shit. And the way she talks, she's not like a Jewish mom from the movies or something, but anyway, she's a little bit proper. She doesn't cuss. It was cracking me up. So I'm going to throw in a three-minute clip here. You can skip it if you want. I personally spoke with some people when things were a little bit more calmed down, and I'm going to give you the other side of the story. Protesters say they feel that the religious people are taking over the country. One person said that parks and public spaces can have prayer, but not have gender separations. Another person commented that if it had been a group of Muslims praying with separate prayer, segregated gender by prayer, that no one in Tel Aviv would have ever dared to approach them and protest a Muslim prayer. It was just because we were fellow Jews, they felt that they could antagonize us. I could not agree with that commentary anymore. There are Muslims in our country that do separate outdoor programming. Nobody goes and, and um, antagonizes them. On my walk home, I saw a group of young people playing cards at a table that they had set up. One of them was a young man who had approached me at our prayer service earlier when we were under attack. He had approached me and told me in English not to be upset and that not all Israelis share the views of the protesters and that what they were doing was not nice and that he gives me his full support. It was such a light at that moment. Before he left, he told me that our nation is crumbling. He said this in English. I told him, don't say that. We are going to rise up and overcome this in unity and with love. This is what I told him. Later on, I saw him again. I went over to him, he was sitting down playing cards with his friends, and I, and I thanked him for throwing in a positive word amidst a heap of destruction. He went on to say it was no problem, and that there are many people with many different views, and that he's even friends with people that have different views. He pointed to his friend sitting beside him and said that he had been out with the protesters. I was in shock. The friend was sitting right there next to him. I asked him, you were one of the people who went out to disrupt a prayer service? On Yom Kippur? I was in complete shock. I, I wanted to cry. He proudly said yes. I had words with him. I asked him why didn't he come protest us last year? To which he responded to me, why didn't the Me Too movement happen 10 years before it did? Well, he lost me right there. I told him not to use that line on a first date. He didn't think it was funny, but his female friends at the table gave me a laugh. He told me that Tel Aviv is a secular city and that anyone who wants to be publicly religious should get out or move to B'nai Brak, which is a heavily Orthodox city nearby. I was appalled. I asked him, where is it written? I said, where is it written that Tel Aviv is a secular city? He said to me, it's not written, but you can find it in Wikipedia. Well, after the holiday, I checked. I didn't see the word secular appear even one time on that Wikipedia page about Tel Aviv. I asked him that if he is a progressive liberal, how can he not see that by telling people what to do and how to pray and how to sit, 
that that's outside of the concept of religious pluralism, which is supposed to be a foundation for progressives. He said he is not for religious pluralism and that he wants to keep the religious people out of Tel Aviv. He doesn't want religious pluralism. He wants his way. He believes that he is the owner of Tel Aviv. I left this conversation in shock. I am sure that the protesters were not fasting. They were plenty energized to fuel up their fire internally and externally as they passed through on their bicycles. There's this idea going around that words are thoughts. That the human animal with the human brain doesn't really have thoughts the way you think. It has words. And I think this is right. Various people have been talking about it. I can't remember who. Scott Adams is one. So first off, there's this thing about free will. The humans have it, and they'll do tests where they hook electrodes up to your brain, and then you get to do stuff freely. And what they find is that your brain is doing stuff before you think you're doing something. Like, I don't know, if someone tells you to pick up a pencil, it'd be like, a little part of your brain already says, move the hand before you consciously move your hand. So, you know, do we live in a clockwork, clockwork universe? Is physics just making you a meat puppet? These are just philosophical, philosophical, philosophy, philosoph philosophical things that people argue about. But the answer is some stuff that people think they're doing with, for good reasons and with thought out and conscious, whatever, uh, according to scientific tests, you maybe ain't, you're not doing it for the reasons you think you're doing it. And so people will bring this up in the context of arguing with a woke person, and what they have, their arguments are just, they'll just say pretty much verbatim the arguments that they've already heard, you know, like, the cops are racist, or women need to have the right to choose. And like, that's it. There isn't anything beyond that. And, you know, and it, it goes for the right wing. It goes for everyone. You know, I'm sure, what would a right wing person say? Uh, you know, this Biden economy sucks. And that'll pretty much, you know, you'd be like, well, give me, okay, yeah, post hoc, um, pre hoc, pre hoc, ad hoc. So anyways, if someone says the cops are racist, it's not because they went through a bunch of thinking to come to that result. Like that, that is the thinking. The words that come out of their mouth is the thinking itself. And then you can say, well, why do you think the cops are racist? And then they will do a post hoc rationalization for the words that they said. Basically, the words that they said are going to now make them come up with a narrative, a theory of the case, a bunch of other words that support the thing that they said. But it's not the actual theory of the case that made them say the cops are racist. It's them saying the cops are racist makes them come up with a long story about why that's true. Actually, let's go back to, you know, someone picking up a pencil with a bunch of electrodes on their head. It's not that someone told, it doesn't work if someone to told you to pick up the pencil. They're just like, okay, you know, here's a bunch of stuff on a desk. Do something with it. You know, maybe there's a pencil, some paper, a stapler, whatever. And a person might write some things on a piece of paper and do it on another piece of paper and then put those two together and staple them. And so, you know, before they pick up the pencil, before they start writing... Basically, before each word appears on the paperwork. Anyways, their brain is doing it before they even know they're doing it. You know, it starts with the brain. And then if you ask them, you know, why did you write down these nursery rhymes and put them into a collated stapled paperwork thing? They will come up with a rationalization afterwards. Like, oh, well, I like 
nursery rhymes. That was what came to my head. And then, you know, what you always do is you put the, anyways, you come up with a reason after the fact. You don't have time to, you know, in the old days, a caveman, right, doesn't have time to think about why he's running away from the lion. You got you to do stuff before you have a reason to do it. I don't know if there's a word for exactly what I'm saying here. Like post hoc rationalization is, that kind of describes what I'm talking about. Post hoc means after the fact, I think. But because of this, if you listen to someone who's woke, what you will mostly hear is regurgitated talking points. It's really noticeable in political discussions. And like I say, it must be the same for the right. You know, oh, this Biden economy is terrible. Why is that? Okay, let me try and come up with a reason to back that up. Oh, because of inflation. But, you know, you didn't say because of inflation. You just, you've heard literally someone else say, this Biden economy is terrible. So you say those exact words, this Biden economy is terrible. And then if you're asked to back that up, you do a post hoc rationalization and say, well, because inflation is high. And then when Donald Trump was president, gas was $2.30 and now it's $6.75. And you'll come up with all sorts of things to back up that little snippet of the Biden economy is bad, you know. But so it's just a fun game. If you're listening to someone talk about politics, listen for them just giving the talking points that they've heard someone else say and not actually making up anything new. And then the other thing that supports this idea is AI. Like, you know, ChatGPT, Google Bard, um, they're all what's called large language models. And what they do with those is you feed in a bunch of text, the internet, and then all of a sudden they can reason. It's been said that when you rank all of the human inventions ever, you know, the wheel, Anyways, the best one ever is language. And it looks like language basically allows AI to come alive and make decisions. You know, you can tell them to, you know, how do you make a hamburger? And they'll tell you how, even if they didn't, you know, and they're not, they're not um, taking that directly from something they read. They can make it up new, generative AI, it's called. And, you know, we don't know exactly. This is a little bit racist or maybe colonialist, but it may be that not all languages are created equal. And because the words, the language, is kind of doing the thinking for you, you're the meat puppet ran, you know, moved around by the language. Well, if your language is English or Chinese, then you're going to have a successful society because, whatever, you're controlled by those things, English and Chinese. And, you know, maybe Spanish isn't quite as good as English. Well, I don't, we don't know about that. None of that's proven. But you can kind of imagine you go to just just imagine some shithole country that's got some crazy language that you never heard of. That may not be a language for success. And we may be able to actually figure this stuff out. You know, you I don't want to pick on it. Okay, the purple people. We'll talk about those purple people in their purple language. We may be able to, you know, train an AI large language model on the purple people's language and then you get a dumb AI. It may turn out. And then we'll be like, oh, it was language all along. Or it'll be smart as hell and be like, okay, that theory was wrong. Just go on offense when the mainstream media attacks you. Just go on offense. So the Washington Post was getting ready to try and cancel Dave Portnoy the other day. Who's that? I mean, I don't know him. I guess he's famous. He's the head of something called Barstool Sports, which does podcasting, I guess. They had some eight, nine-figure deal with a online gambling company that 
somehow it blew up and they sold it back to Dave Portnoy for a dollar and then they're going with ESPN now. But there's this clip going around the internet where Dave Portnoy calls up a Washington Post food reporter because he does something, maybe it's called Pizza Fest. Apparently he's famous for going around the country eating pizza and he was going to have a festival where all his fans could come and eat pizza. And there were sponsors and people giving out pizza. I don't know. But this Washington Post lady was sending out emails to the sponsors saying, you know, how do you feel about sponsoring a racist? Actually, it wasn't a racist. It was a misogynist. Actually, this part is weird. It's not clear to me. So there's a video of him making the phone call. And he's like, he calls up the lady. He's like, do you mind if I record the phone call? She says, that's fine. He's like, why are you sending out emails to my advertisers or sponsors calling me a misogynist? And she says, I didn't do that. And he's like, oh, well, let me read one of the emails you sent. And it's like, this guy's a misogynist. And he's like, why did you just lie to me and say you didn't do that when obviously you did it? And she's like, well, okay, I did it, I did it one time, so I didn't do it. So her excuse was doing it one time is the same thing as never doing it. And that was why it was a good clip on the internet. Plus, she's the Washington Post, which... You know, everyone, every right-thinking person like myself hates. Fake news, lying ass, mainstream media, etc. And so, I don't know if you've caught the weird part or you're just going along with, I don't know, anyways. So, I guess she was calling him a misogynist, but he was mispronouncing it as a misogynist. Because when I was listening to it, I was like, there's a thing called miscegenation. It's like M-I-S-C. And miscegenation is race mixing. It's where, I think basically, at least in America, it's where a white person and a black person get married. And I was like, well, you know, I haven't heard anyone say that whites and blacks should not be able to get married or, or even talk about that. I mean, ever in my lifetime. But I guess I figured he must have said something that she's misconstruing. But maybe he just, he just didn't know how to say the word misogynist. I guess. I don't know. That part, that whole thing was weird. I was like, are we all going to start talking about miscegenation? That'll be interesting, but I guess we're not. And like, I don't know Dave Portnoy, other than occasionally you'll hear about people accusing him of stuff. And I think the misogyny is that, I don't know, he was like meeting, I don't know, 18-year-olds or something on the internet, and then he'd fly them out and have sex with them, and then, you know, not talk to them, and then fly them back to where they came from. Or something like that. And they didn't appreciate it. They thought they had a multi-millionaire boyfriend who was going to put them into the lap of luxury. But he wasn't. I think he's like, you know, go wait in this bedroom for five hours. I'll be over for 15 minutes. And then my guy will take you back to the airport. Anyways, that's not what's in the news now. It's just this Washington Post reporter saying, yeah, you can record me. And no, I never sent out that thing. Well, okay, that one... So it was a nice dunk, and he went on offense, and, you know, he has, I don't know, but probably a million Twitter followers, and so he was able to get his side of the story out. He went on offense, worked out great for him. And I believe none of the sponsors dropped his pizza fest. And so the Timcast guys were saying, I think they were saying this. I might be, make, I might be confusing multiple shows in my mind, but I think they were saying, well, that's, you know, Russell Brand should go on offense. And the update on him is I think the UK cops are now looking into the accusations that were in the various media outlets about him. 
And I think I didn't mention last week, but one of the girls went to like a rape crisis center at the time, you know, 10, 20 years ago. So that doesn't look good. And then Russell Brand, he put out a video that was two and a half minutes saying he didn't do nothing. And then I think it's radio silence from him ever since. So not offense. So the situations are a little different. Russell Brand probably has some lawyers telling him to shut the F up. And, you know, Trump has lawyers telling him the same thing, and then he doesn't. And, you know, Trump, if he wins the election, then everything's great. And if he doesn't, he may be going to prison. So we got some apples, some oranges, and some pears that we're trying to compare. But so there's this alternative to YouTube called Rumble.com, Canadian video website. And I think to try and make themselves famous, get a leg up um, on... You know, everyone's trying to make an alternative to Twitter, alternative to Facebook, etc. Basically, become a billionaire if it works. And so Rumble is one of the ones. And what they did to start with was they hired famous people to make videos there. One of those people was Russell Brand. So I think you get, you know, maybe a 10-minute video on YouTube from Brand. And then if you want to watch a longer version, you got to go to Rumble. And right-wing, alt-media, pretty much all the people have a rumble version of their YouTube thing in case YouTube uh, demonetizes them, which it does already, or kicks them off entirely. But I think a member of parliament sent a letter to rumble and maybe a bunch of advertisers saying, you know, hey, you shouldn't have Russell Brand on your website or you shouldn't be giving them money monetizing them. And I think Burger King and HelloFresh, if you heard of that, they have stopped advertising on Rumble because of this. And I think Rumble said, you know, we're not going to take away someone's speech if they haven't been convicted in a court of law. Well, we'll see what happens, because if you're out of the mainstream, all these websites, you know, even Twitter, it's very, it seems pretty easy to get advertisers to drop you. Especially advertising is down, I'm not sure, maybe the last eight months. Like, the amount of advertising spending like, got cut in half. And so it's pretty easy for them to be like, well, while we're spending half the money, let's just take that away from these things that the mainstream media is calling racist. So we'll see what happens there. Um, there was a Twitter alternative parlor that got canceled, I don't know, two years ago? Or who knows, three, four? And basically, when you start up a Twitter alternative, you don't, the first thing you don't do is go rent out giant warehouses and fill them with computer servers. What you do is you rent computer servers from, in particular, Amazon. Amazon is a giant company. Most of the money they make is from something called Amazon Web Services, AWS. You know, even though you think it's the buying stuff and getting it in the mail, that's not where their money comes from. Their money comes from renting out servers. And so Parler had all their computer stuff on Amazon Web Services and people called them racist and they said to Amazon, hey, why are you letting a racist be on your AWS? And Amazon was like, oh, well, we don't allow racists. So they shut them down. And Elon Musk has since bought Twitter and the advertisers have fled from there. And Rumble seems like maybe possibly ever so slightly has a chance of getting big, you know, being a serious alternative to YouTube. Basically, we haven't had a big cancellation lately, so of a person or of a corporation, but we may be having that stuff now. And the way they do it is they take away your servers from Amazon. Microsoft is the other company that has a bunch of ser servers, so that's your two options. And then the Apple Store and the Google Play Store, 
if you if they take you off of that then you can't be on a phone and so anyways those various i guess those four companies what is that google amazon microsoft apple if those four companies get together they can cancel anyone or anything no matter how big and how powerful the writers guild of america their strike ended and the screen actors guild is supposed to end here a few weeks so hollywood can go back to being woke or maybe they're going to be different now seems like this has been a hot union summer kind of like a hot girl summer I think Hot Girl Summer was maybe an Instagram hashtag two or three years ago where you'd post pictures of your attractive self living your best life and hashtag it Hot Girl Summer. I think it was kind of a white girl summer thing. I'm sure the queers got in on it too. But the auto workers are on strike. Uh, UPS drivers, they almost went on strike and then they got what is considered a great deal. I heard they got $160,000 a year. Um, I think that's the maximum. Let's just run through some numbers when they're throwing them around for union workers. So if a driver is getting $160,000 a year, according to reports, I think that includes, you know, working 20 hours of overtime. So that cuts it down. And I think it includes um, health insurance and retirement fund or 401k matching. So you can divide a yearly salary by 2000 to get the hour, hourly salary. Tongue did something funny there. So basically, 160,000 a year. That sounds like you're making 80 dollars an hour, but it doesn't include all that crap I just mentioned. So probably can cut that number in half again if you're, you know, not working crazy overtime. So they're probably making 40 dollars an hour, which uh, good job. If you're a UPS driver in Manhattan, you cannot buy a house. If you're a UPS driver in Iowa, you can buy a mansion. So the Writers Guild strike, what, the big things people are talking about was AI, writer's rooms, and residuals. Well, first off, the money. So, you know, being a writer is, you're like, I'm going to be a Hollywood writer. It's kind of like saying, well, I'm going to be a, I'm going to play in the NFL. I'm going to be a football player. I'm going to be the quarterback of a Super Bowl winning team. It's going to be awesome. Nothing can stop me, says the eight-year-old black kid in the ghetto who somehow gets stopped. So the Writers Guild, I think it's mostly just people who have to work a day job and don't have a job writing. And, you know, they're, whatever, of course, of course they want to strike. <laughs> they're not working. If you ain't working anyways, may as well strike. It's kind of like buying a lottery ticket. You're like, man, if I ever do get a job as a writer, yeah. Like me and my siblings, when we were kids, we'd look through the Sears catalog and be like, okay, everyone gets to choose one thing on each page that you get to have. And for some reason, I wanted to go through every page of ladies' lingerie, but my brother didn't. It's just a red bra. They're all the same. Oh, no, this one's underwire. It'll look great on my Canadian girlfriend. But if a writer works 50 weeks out of the year, uh, I think they make about a quarter million dollars a year. They may have to pay for their own health insurance. Not sure. And then there's something called a Section 14 writer-producer, and they make uh, about $12,000 a week or... 600000 a year. And so I don't care if a sports star makes $10 million a year, and I don't care if these writers make six, seven figures. That's capitalism. You know, one side asks for the most, and the other side tries to give them the least, and you find the middle. So on YouTube, I watch a few categories of stuff. Um, I watch people working on diesel equipment, which is not something I've ever done, but I watch them. 
and gasoline stuff, which I have done, you know, if your car breaks, if my car breaks down, I'm working on it. And in particular, I like to work on small engines like lawnmowers, etc. Just for fun. Go to a garage sale, buy a broken down something or other, fix it. And then be like, where do I store this thing? I didn't, I don't need another lawnmower. Although not actually lawnmowers, more weird stuff. I don't know, I got like a roll around leaf blower, which I don't need because I got like two backpack blowers. You get the idea. So I watch that stuff and then I watch Hollywood movie news channels. And so they're throwing around some numbers for this strike. Let me, let me look. The union asked for $429 million worth of stuff. The producers, which is the movie companies, offered them $86 million, and they settled in the middle at $233. So $86,233,429 is the low, medium, high. And that's projections. I mean, I'm sure it's hard to come up with numbers like this. Basically, I don't care about that. What I want to know is how does it compare to the previous contract, which I have not seen. But so AI, the writers themselves can use AI if they want, but the movie studios can't force them to. And every movie and TV show has to have at least one writer getting paid, even if the thing's written by AI. And these contracts last three years. So I think, you know, three years from now, <laughs> basically AI is not ready right now. Three years from now, it's gonna put them all out of work or there's just gonna be, you know, the writer is gonna be a tech guy who controls the AI and there'll be one writer for who knows what, all of Netflix. Every show, he'll be like, I want a gay rom-com. I want a, you know, black kid in the ghetto who grows up to be a sports star. Or maybe he'll be like, oh, you know, right now what's popular is anti-woke movies about army captains in Ukraine. Make me one of those, who knows? And the AI will be like, oh, you mean the neo-Nazis? They'll be like, well, yeah, paper over that. But AI doesn't matter. It's a, for three years. Okay, then there's the residuals. It used to be that if you wrote, you know, a Law & Order show from the years ago, then, you know, you'd be getting thousands of dollars in the mail every month for the rest of your life. And that has stopped with streaming, and it's going to be a little bit better than it used to be. Well, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Money. Some people get a certain amount of money, that's fine. So, you know, I, this is woke, anti-woke. So the thing that would have been interesting is if the streamers had to release their viewership numbers, right? To prove how much money you are owed per residuals, you have to know how many people watched it. And then you could have seen how all the woke shows fell on their flat on their face. But in general, the streamers do not want to release their numbers and be like, this thing that cost us a half billion dollars only has, a, you know, one, one guy in Pokima is watching it. Pokoima. So we may get a little bit more real numbers, but basically, no. The answer is no. And they didn't do it for woke reasons, but unfortunately, anti-woke didn't win there. And so the woke thing, but I don't know, I don't know who's the winner, but is the writer's rooms. I'll just throw some numbers out. Feel free to ignore, but... I think if a show has six or less episodes, then either one person can write the whole thing. That's one thing. One person can write as much as they want, but if a second person is ever brought in as a writer, then a bunch of rules kick in. And so, you know, the one writer using AI, that's the question mark. Is every show, can every writer now write an entire thing by themselves with AI? So every show just gets one writer to, make, to meet this little magic part of the agreement, I don't know. But if you have more, if you need more than one writer, then if it's six episodes, you need three, minimum of three, and they all gotta be writer producers, the kind that make 12 grand a week. 
So maybe every show's every show that was going to be eight episodes, I think that's common on Netflix, is now going to be six, maybe. Because if you go over six, then I think every episode you have to add another writer. So seven episodes, now you got to have four, eight, you got to have five, something like that. Don't quote me on that. Maybe every two episodes beyond six. But why this matters to anti-woke is when you start getting a bigger number of writers, that's where you bring in the diversity, equity, and inclusion. You're like, this show needs five good writers and we're required to have six. So that's where we bring in, you know, the black woman who has no talent, but then we can say we had a black woman on there. And then she's like, you're not listening to my ideas. This is racist. You're racist. And they're like, oh, well, uh, we'll prove to you we're not racist by saying that America's racist in the TV show. And she's like, well, you know, I'm making five grand a week. If you say America's racist and I don't get to write anything, then I guess we'll call it even. And the Writers Guild wanted like maybe six writers. You know, if you, if you got one episode at all, then they want six. So that was going to be plenty of room for diversity and then you know i don't think you want to if you're paying okay they have to be the writer producers to start with and then you get the cheaper writers after that so you know does netflix want to pay 12 grand a week for a diversity hire that is just there to bring the company down from the inside i don't think so but i don't know and most importantly i don't know how this compares to previous years to see if we're going to be less woke or not and in fifth place was The Blind, which was a Christian movie that did pretty good. I guess churches that were more than 30 miles away from the theater could play it. It got $5 million, I think, on a low budget. Uh, it tells the story of the Duck Dynasty guy. But it kind of continues this thing where horror, budgets, horror movies make money because their budgets are so small. And then these Christian movies, their budgets are just even smaller. And they make less money than horror, but they still make a lot of money. And I think proportionally, they make the most. Let's check in on the box office. Paw Patrol 2 came in number one. It did good. If you got a kid, take them. Saw 10 came in second. It did medium, but it's such a cheap movie, it'll make money. And then the creator came in third, 14 million, which is a flop. And I didn't realize, but it's a Disney movie. I could have been rooting against it leading up to this, and then yay, it was a flop. I didn't even know. But it stars John David Washington, the son of Denzel Washington. And so the director of this movie, he's one of the directors of the Star, War, Star Wars movie. And then Christopher Nolan made David Washington the star of um, his movie before Oppenheimer, Tenet. Basically two huge directors that, you know, are churning out tons of big-ass movies. Anyways, they both tried to make a star out of John David Washington, and they both got flops out of him. So it kind of continues this long list of you know, there was the Oscars are so white hashtag, and then they put people of color as in the starring roles of a ton of movies, women in the starring roles, and pretty much all those things haven't made money, except for Barbie. And so Disney tried again, and it flopped. And this isn't the first movie that Hollywood is going to wake up to, whatever, this concept. So, you know, movies take two years to make. I think two years from now, we're not going to see people trying to take whatever, people of color that no one wants to see as the star of a movie and making them the star. Like, basically, is that, is that, is it next summer where things change? It's, we'll see. And we got the Marvels with three female superheroes, all, you know, very diverse. And then Off-White and the seven normal height people, so we'll see how those two movies do. That's all, folks. 
Links in the description and thanks for listening.